it's Lou Rosenfeld, and welcome to the latest Rosenfeld Review Podcast. I am thrilled, and yes, this is going to sound somewhat self-serving, but I am thrilled that we have Kevin Hoffman joining us today. Hi, Kevin. Hello, Lou. How are you? Great, and it's great to have you because uh, your long-awaited book, Meeting Design for Managers, Makers, and Everyone is uh, about to go on sale on March 15th. We're recording this uh, about 10 days uh, a week or so before that. Um, but I can tell you, Kevin, that uh, uh, the pre-orders are, are coming in hot and heavy and uh, people have been really waiting for this book. Good. I've been, I've been, um, been talking about it for a while and uh, I think, you know, I... The, one of the things that I think is so interesting about this topic is I feel like it'll be long, it'll be around long after I die. Um, it'll be around regardless of how technology changes. Um, uh, this will be a topic that will be around. I think, you know, in design right now, there's this, there's this interesting trend uh, or a lot of interesting conversations um, around the human, the physical human being. And um, if I think about things like smart technologies, uh, you know, screenless technologies, there's a lot of thinking around how does this interface with human beings in a way that makes their lives easier. They're, I feel like meetings is still, meetings are still this very instinctual thing that we do that's very human and at this point, I think technology hasn't really changed the sensation and feeling of being in meetings very much, if at all. Um, I think it's opened up some different channels, uh, just like social media is a different channel than traditional media. But the basic user experience, the attendee experience is unchanged. And my favorite evidence of that is like there's a book from 1976 uh, and the basic models in the book are still valid, um, you know. So it feels like this is a cyclical topic, the, the topic of meetings and being smarter with meetings. And I'm, I'm really happy to make a contribution and, and really collect a lot of awesome ideas from a lot of other smart people as well. Well, you do that. And, and I mean, you, you, uh, you, know, you certainly acknowledge the literature and, and that, that cyclical uh, uh, history of, of people stepping back and, and thinking about meetings. I want to ask you what's different now and, and how does your book go about things differently? And I, I know that a big part of the answer is the technology has, has certainly changed what we can do. You touched on that a moment ago, but um, I, I would imagine you'd say there's more to it than that. Yeah, I, I definitely think there's more to it. I actually feel like the technology hasn't played as drastic a role. If I was to, if I was to look back at my career, and, and speak less from a, from a position of what has happened in the history of the world <laughs> and, and more just in my career. I think some of the greatest hits or biggest experiences and changes I've, I've undergone is going from being in a meeting where I'm listening, you know, and, and essentially meetings being digitally managed from a workflow perspective, but physically executed. Uh, to the idea of going from speaking to drawing in meetings 
So I think there was a big move towards visualization in meetings and Dan Rome's books, those were definitely an influence on me. Obviously the work of people like Dave Gray and Sonny Brown uh, and James McAnufo really changed the way that we thought about, hey, what are we doing in the room together and why? Then I think more recently there have been, a, you know, a host of digital layers that have been added to meetings, you know, vid video conferencing, audio conferencing via, you know, voice over IP, um, uh, v shared visualization tools, starting with things like Google Docs, but now you have tools like Mural and, and uh, real-time board and board thing and Google Docs. I mean, really, I, start with, I started with Google Docs because I feel like Google Docs was doing this, uh, allowing us to create a shared visual or document at, while we're having a real-time conversation um, before we realized how sophisticated we could get with that. But I think fundamentally, the, the core model or the core kind of thinking has not changed all that much, which is, we're thinking about how we use time together in, in real time to get towards outcomes that we couldn't get to otherwise. What are the decisions that are supporting those outcomes that we need to make and, and are the people that need to make those decisions present? And are we, are we structuring our time, um, digital tools or no, in a way to get as quickly to those decisions or efficiently to those decisions or uh, whatever outcome it is. Sometimes the outcome is just understanding a problem better. And if that's the case, are we aligning our, our use of time and the activities and the, and the way we're engaging each other's brains? Uh, or I imagine there's a, a, an outcome now that, that, or an outcome that's valuable still is understanding together that you don't understand the problem. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Level. I think solutionism is very alive in design and certainly alive in business. Um, I had a meeting this morning where uh, we were meeting with a, a product manager outside of design, uh, outside of the design team. And people in their minds, a solution feels, um, it feels like progress. It feels like, oh, I could see, I could see a solution to this. I love working with developers and I've worked with a lot of awesome developers over the years. And I love working with them because I, I think the cliche of, of working with technologists and developers is that they hate meetings. And I think, you know, if, if I was to hypothesize, and I don't have any data on this, but I would imagine it's because they're solution-minded. They're more likely to think in terms of how they, how they would build a solution. And once they see that in their mind, the meeting feels ephemeral. It feels unnecessary. Um, but actually, you know, understanding the problem richly, um, I think, can be a really good way to use time. It's just really important that everybody knows that's what, what we're doing. So you got to understand that the meeting is a, a time for your brain to engage and, and kind of get dunked into the problem space in ways that you can't do by yourself, but not to see the meeting as the opportunity to solve the problem that may come when you're sitting on your own and, and, uh, and, and working through the code. Yeah, I, I, exactly. I also think that this, there's a simple practice that, in my experience, I haven't seen. Um, I still don't see it in the meetings I sit in, uh, in my role at Capital One. Sometimes I see it, but it's rare, which is, before we start talking, let's just explicitly say what we believe we're here to do. 
Um, you know, a few people in my book talk about different ways to do this, but just to start the conversation by saying, hey, what do we all believe we're here to do? Make sure we capture everyone's beliefs about that. And then at the end of the meeting, sit, go back to that list and say, did we actually do these things? Because odds are you did some of them, but not all of them. And that's going to tell you more about how your team's working together than, uh, you know, any uh, Kanban digital tool will. So it's interesting you mentioned Kanban and, and you talked a little bit earlier about the mural and, and, uh, and visual thinking and a lot of the ideas that come from people like Brown and Gray and Macanufo in Rome, uh, all fantastic people, by the way. So I, I, I'm kind of getting the sense, just jumping back to broader trends, that the, the, the cycle has brought us to a point where uh, the, the stuff of meetings has become more material than in the past. This sort of like materiality of ideas. It's like you, the ideas are almost tangible in ways that they weren't before. And, you know, thanks to the technology. Uh, and uh, at, at the same time, maybe we are finding ourselves more hung up with the technology and you know it doesn't come without a price there's always hassles and problems that it presents and and maybe there's a bit of a reaction where we're trying to like step back and peel away the technology and some of the other complexity and, and kind of remind ourselves what the hell it is we're doing when we're having meetings in the first place yeah yeah i think you know there's one there's the, what you said just reminded me there's one big thing that i think I left out of like my own greatest hits, uh, like meeting realizations. One of them is definitely agile. Um, and it's not so much the practice of agile software development as it is agile. I think was the first time I was exposed to a framework where people said, you know what, we're going to have a very rigid menu of meetings and each one has a very clear declaration of purpose and a very specific agenda. I think um, in terms of where we are now, and, and you talked about kind of a, a, a humanization, a move back towards physicality and, and um, kind of stripping things away. If it's a parallel in, in a sense, I think the reaction to agile um, and the, the over agilization or maybe the over um, the, the deification of agile as a method um, which I think is real. I think a lot of people have said, oh, we can just go lean or agile or some flavor of agile and that will solve our problem. I think the result of that is, you know, people are starting to realize they have a lot more agency in how they spend their time than they, uh, than they, than they had previously because agile gave them essentially more structure. It's like, oh, we could do this every day and this once a week and this at the end of our sprints. That, that's a structure that we didn't have before. Oh, now that we have a structure, is this structure actually working for us? And how do we customize it and tweak it and measure if it's actually doing the job? Um, I think that is the human piece, which is like, you know, we've been, we've been killing ourselves in Agile for, for three quarters or a year, and we don't feel like we're, we're any better off. We don't feel like we're better aligned. We're not solving customers' problems any better. Why is that? Well, part of it might be the, the fact that the alignment between your culture and, and traditional agile isn't great, you know? So how do we assess that? And I talk about that a little bit in the book. Well, you know, I mean, the, the sense I'm, I'm getting as we're talking is that there's this, and agile might be unfriendly to this, 
which might back up your point, that there's, um, we've not given ourselves enough time to stew over things, stew over the fact that we don't always understand each other, we may not speak the same language, that we're dealing with trends and ideas that are complex, and that we have problems to solve together that are hard to, to address if we, you know, we come from different perspectives. And I think of the, the foundational fable, certainly for Roosevelt Media, is the, the blind man and the elephant. And I'll, I'll, I've mentioned it here on this podcast before, but I'll just say it again really briefly if, if you're not familiar with it. Uh, those of you out there in podcast land, a, a bunch of uh, blind men are out there going for a walk together and <laughs> without a sighted person to help them in the jungle. Uh, and uh, as unlikely as that is, they, there they are, and they... Um, um, they, they come across an elephant. One of them touches the trunk and says, I believe I found a snake. Another one touches uh, one of the elephant's uh, thick legs and says, no, 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 uh, it's clearly a tree. And they all touch a part of the elephant with a different conclusion. And it's not until they actually talk to each other and compare notes and in effect have a meeting that they, it's not until then that they actually achieve the, the greater insight through that stewing, that synthesis, that a meeting a parlay gives them. Maybe one of the points that I think, I think you're making is that we, we kind of need to accept that, that you, you do need to have meetings and you know, that they have a role and that they aren't always going to lead to a solution uh, in a very short amount of time, but that, that's okay. In fact, it's necessary. Yeah. Yeah. I would, I would extend the metaphor a little beyond that even. So I like, I, I love the idea that, in the parable, you know, it's the meeting that allows them to realize a truth that they wouldn't actually be able to realize otherwise. So if we take that, if we take that precept that a meeting, you know, a successful meeting allows you to realize a truth, I think the question that I'm asking with my book or one of the questions I'm asking is, you know, are you actually stewing on the question of what truths are your meetings allowing you to realize? Mm. There's a little bit of an inception uh, to, to your point, which is the meaning is absolutely necessary. So once you've accepted the meaning is necessary, what is it a tool? What, what, how are you using it as a tool? And are you stewing on that question? Because I think agile, uh, and I'm not, I'm, and one thing I want to be clear on, I work in an organization that practices agile in probably 10,000 different ways. So, you know, at a big company where Agile is a part of the mission, um, like how that's interpreted by different teams varies. The thing I want to say about uh, about Agile is, Agile, it it can allow you to say, oh, we don't have to think about what these meetings are because there's a recipe and we just follow the recipe. So if we want to throw another metaphor in the mix, a metaphor like cooking, I think it's easy to follow recipes. I think what's harder is actually understanding how ingredients interact. So if you're a, if you're a cook and you know that you use different ingredients in different ways, it allows you to see through to results that you wouldn't otherwise be able to see through to. Mm-hmm. If you're a facilitator and you understand that the brain works in a specific way, if you understand that conflict has a role and you've thought about what the role of conflict is going to be, 
it allows you to use the ingredients of a meeting and improvise in a way that I think, uh, you know, a lot of user experience designers, especially ones that are more junior, when they learn like how to run a particular workshop, they really stick to the recipe of like, this is how I run that workshop. And they almost have a script. It's like, here's where we do the post-it notes and here's where we do the design studio. And this is where we say, you know, like this is exactly what I'm supposed to say. And I think one thing that I hope people take away from the book and I hope people take away from all of the literature around this topic is that facilitation is much more akin to cooking where the people and ideas and the time you have are the ingredients and the best cook is, is the one that has the flexibility to work with what they have. And you're not going to be able to port the workshop that worked with one client or one team right into another team and get the same results, nor should you want to. You should want to get the results that are contextually appropriate. Does that make sense? Absolutely. You're making me think of um, a recent family vacation where I tried one of my tried and true recipes, but the kitchen just didn't, you know, the appliances didn't work the same way. The oven didn't work yeah. the same There's context. There's, there's this one spot on my grill that's like not right. And I, if I forget it, like, you know, but that only works on that grill. I know to avoid that spot. And that, and, and I think that's the one thing about meetings that I, that I, I'm really excited about and thinking about a lot these days is how, what is a model for the cultural context of a meeting, you know, like big organization, small organization, you know, software team, development team. There's so many different ways to think about how do, how do we create a cultural context that we can recognize that a meeting exists within. And then what do we do with that knowledge? If we know that, if we know that this is a rapid culture, you know, how do we change the way we facilitate to meet the need for the feeling of rapidity? So, you know, that brings us back to your book, and I wanted to talk a little bit about your practices uh, as a facilitator, which I know you reflect on in the book. I'm going to quote a couple people. You can actually see this on the back jacket of Meeting Design, who talk about your, their experiences with you as a, as a facilitator. And I want to know, what is it about what you do that brings them to feel things like this? Dan Mall, of Super Friendly. A lot of people know Dan. I kid you not. The last meeting I was in that Kevin facilitated, people teared up at the end because of how transformative our time was together. When's the last time that you could say that about any of your meetings? And uh, I'll throw in one more uh, from Christina Halverson uh, of Brain Traffic and the Confab Conferences and, and uh, author of uh, Content Strategy for the Web. Christina says, I would like Kevin Hoppin to design not only my meetings, but also probably my entire life. So that's, um, you know, I mean, look, I'm a publisher. I, I try to get people to say nice things about my author's books, but they were over the top. I don't, I don't, I don't ask them to go that far, but clearly these people have really good experiences uh, with you. Uh, what, what is it about your approach that brings them to feel so strongly and, and what might someone who's reading the book take away so they can make your approach their approach? Uh, so first of all, obviously, and I've said thank you to both of them personally, but, um, you know, I, I always appreciate when people say nice things about my work or, uh, you know, about, about me. Um, I paid Dan and Christina a lot of money to say those things. So. Oh, good, because 
that was supposed to be me, but if you took care of it, I'm fine. Yeah, but uh, but but joking aside, I'm I'm uh, I've worked with Dan for a long time, and I I treasure the opportunity, any chance I get to work with Dan because he is a singular thinker, and Christina is one of my favorite people to hang out with uh, in the world. Um, so, uh, like, it's a privilege to work with those kinds of people and to provide them with value. There there are two things that that come to mind two spaces in terms of answering your question. There are things that I think anyone can do. And then there are things that I think are maybe my style that I don't, I talk about a little bit in the book, but I don't, I don't talk about myself at quite as much in the book, you know, as I talk about like what you could be doing um, as a facilitator. So in terms of things I think anybody could do, I, I think that there's a basic model of the facilitator as a, as a non-biased party. So the meeting that Dan is referring to, I can explain why people were on, uh, on the verge of tearing up um, in a second. But that particular meeting, the, uh, without getting into detail, I'd say the goal is to position a, a well-known brand in a different way, um, in a different space. And we spent a couple of days together um, trying to figure out what the history of, of this brand was in this particular topic space, and then articulating a path towards how to change the perception of the brand and make them relevant in a space they previously weren't relevant in. I think the, the reason that was successful, uh, the reason that at least that those two days were successful, and I think the resulting work was successful, is because it's very easy to go into that room with a bias as a facilitator. Um, just what I said now is a bias. This is a well-known brand. That's a bias. Mm -hmm. uh, another bias is they're not known in the space. Maybe they are, maybe they're not. It depends on who you talk to. But being aware of what biases you have and trying to eliminate those for the purposes of specific activities and conversations. I think that's something that anyone can do. Um, but it requires you to take at least a moment before you walk in the room, ideally, you know, a little bit of time before you walk in the room and say, what are the assumptions that I hold as a facilitator and how can I prevent these assumptions from having an impact on the quality of the conversation? Because um, someone else in the book, uh, I, I'm trying to remember if they said it in the book or they said it to me personally, Kate Rudder once said to me um, that perception is reality. So if I go into a room and I'm facilitating a conversation and the room perceives that I believe uh, the conversation isn't going in the right direction, then it won't go in the right direction. You know, so how, how do I shed those biases? I think that's something that um, help, has helped me be successful with Christina and Dan and other folks. And, and um, it's something that I think is a really important thing to remember. And it's really hard for designers to do that. Uh, they're, they're, I think their natural tendency is like developers to, to seize opportunities and to see solutions. And for the purposes of a conversation, you don't necessarily want to lose those and abandon them, but you want to keep them out of the conversation long enough to create a shared perception, a shared reality. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's one thing that comes to mind. Um, in terms of people saying nice things about me personally, and what is it that I think I do that... Um, helps or that I've been able to be successful running uh, lots of workshops and meetings over the years. Um, 
I think that I, I don't think, I know, that I genuinely try to find in my own um, reasons for being there what about, what about what the people I'm in the room with, what about their needs and their goals um, can I 100% back? So I start with theirs first, and then I try to find myself in those things. Um, I'll give you an example. Um, I was facilitating a meeting, uh, the meeting with Dan, we were facilitating uh, at a well-known business uh, school, probably the most well-known business school in the world. And we, Dan runs this really interesting apprenticeship program. It's super friendly where, you know, he gives people who might not normally have opportunities to learn design, to learn design in an applied way while, while working for clients for a period of three to six months. And he had some apprentices. There was an apprentice in that meeting. So that apprentice went from, you know, essentially very limited job options to being at the top business school in the, in the world. Uh, you know, being a part of a, a project and a process. Um, and that's amazing. And, and that's to Dan's credit. And I think that's one of the reasons why the meeting was very, probably the main reason why the meeting was very emotionally powerful. But what I try to do is, is say, well, why is it, why is that so meaningful? Why is that so powerful? What is it, what is it about the brand? What is it about the designers in the room that, that they're trying to achieve in their careers? Um, you know, pull, what are they trying, what, what, what kind of design motivates them? Um, as a, right now, I am really fortunate in my role at Capital One, I manage um, directly, I manage about five groups of designers, different kinds of designers. Um, some of them are, are service designers, some of them are content strategists, some of them are UX uh, or user interface designers. But they're all awesome. And they're all motivated in different ways. So as a manager, when I'm having a conversation with a team or, or a smaller group, it's really important to me to understand what their motivations are, what they believe to be true, what they perceive to be real, and work with those constraints within my goals as a, as a, uh, you know, a leader in that company. You know, there are things that we're trying to achieve. We have aggressive design agendas. Um, we're, we have really good relationships with our product teams. Uh, in some cases, uh, we have great relationships. In some cases, we're building relationships with new people. And across all of that, if I don't know why a particular service designer is in, is in the building, if I don't know what they really care about, I don't trust my ability to facilitate a conversation. So you actually have a check in place you know, you ask yourself, do I know if I do not, I shouldn't be here. I'm not, or I'm not ready. And I might need to put, pull the, the, the brakes on the process until I am ready. Yeah. Like I think the reality of meetings and the pace of business, whatever business you're in is that you might not have time to, 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 to put that check into place. But if you have the internal compass to recognize it's happening in the room in real time and that you, you're, you're sensing that someone is like really discontent with the direction the meeting is taking or the conversation is going in multiple directions at once. 
that you have the, the presence to be able to say, it feels like this isn't what we should be talking about. What should we be talking about? And you ask the right people. Um, or you ask all of the people, like I said earlier. Um, but, but that idea, uh, it's something that someone in my book that I interviewed, they referred to it as brittle. Like if you have a meeting that's too brittle. Um, really good facilitation, I think, um, for me, and I've done this with lots of people over the years, it comes from having the ability to walk away from whatever you had planned. Um, and knowing, uh, you know what, we had planned this activity, but this isn't really what we need to focus on. It seems like our focus is elsewhere. Um, let's pursue that focus. And if it gets us back to what we planned because we believed that was a good strategy, great. But if not, it'll get us to a new place that will inform where this group is supposed to go and their work together. So I love that you're, you're saying, look, walk away from maybe the, the, the agenda you had created, but don't walk away from the meeting. There's, there's, there's still work to be done together. Great opportunity. And it may lead to, uh, it may simply be a different path to the original direction or goal that the meetings conceived for, or just something completely new and, and useful in a different way. As long as you're, you're, you're flexible. Well, Kevin, I mean, this is, this is so UXy. Uh, you know, you're seeing people and motivations and, and a number of other factors as you're designing material constraints. Uh, it's, it's very designerly and uh, it makes perfect sense. I'm surprised, frankly, that someone else hasn't written this book already because it's one of those things that you look back on and say, well, of course, it makes perfect sense. Meeting design. With that, I think we'll wrap it. Although I did want to ask if you had one final point or a, you know, gift of a sense for our listeners? Oh, there's so many things in the world that I've found lots of value in. I, I would say that, um, you know, in the, in the visual facilitation space, uh, there's this guy that's not really well known, but he's been doing it, I don't know, a really long time. And he's a guy that I had the good fortune to spend a little bit of time with. His name is Kurt Hanks. Do you know Kurt? Um, K-U-R-T? Yeah, K-U-R-T-H-A-N-K-S. He's got a, a couple of little self-published books. I think they're self-published now. But if, if, you, if you Google Kurt Hanks, um, he's got one that I think is called the VizThink Toolkit or the Viz Toolkit or something like that. And Kurt's books are just a um, – they're just – he's just a wonderful person and, and his books are – kind of a, one, one of those little weird little treasures that, that like get, I think so many books like that get lost to the ages because they end up feeling like a, 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 product, a product of their time period. But that's one that I think, like if you talk to Dave Gray or Sonny Brown or you talk to um, maybe Dan Rome, they probably, that's like the musician's musician. Well, and I was actually going to uh, throw in my own little gift, which is, uh, very well known to many listeners, uh, Game Storming, which uh, is uh, Dave Gray, Sonny Brown, James McAnufo. And as a consultant, uh, in the last few years of my consulting career, I don't know how I would have survived without that book. Yeah, I would say, like, for, for fans of Game Storming like yourself, and if you're thinking about, you know, how does my book connect to Game Storming, my hope is that Game Storming is a recipe book filled with great recipes that you know have been collected over the years. It's like the the history of 
kind of these different facilitation tricks and hacks and, and games essentially that work, uh, you know, in combination with my book, it'll teach you how to make your own recipes, remixing a lot of the things that you learn in game storming. So if you know you can do a cover story activity, how can you start to understand why a cover story activity worked and make an activity that isn't in any book anywhere that's really contextually appropriate for your culture and your situation? Well, fantastic. Uh, two great books then. Uh, talking about game storming, but uh, most of all, because it's brand new, it's coming out on March 15th, Kevin Hoffman's Meeting Design for Managers, Makers, and Everyone. It's actually a two-week book put out by Rosenfeld Media. Uh, and uh, I am Lou Rosenfeld, and uh, I have Kevin Hoffman here. Thanks for joining us today, Kevin. It's great to talk with you. It's my pleasure. Thanks, Lou. Thank you.